we are coming uh, toward the, the end of First and Second Thessalonians. We're in the third and final chapter of Second Thessalonians. Uh, as we turn our attention to the first five verses of this chapter, uh, I want to begin with a brief uh, story that took place in 1959 to 1960 between two uh, men whose lives were dramatically changed through a bet, a wager uh, that they made with each other. When it was all said and done, uh, one of these men would go on to own a major publishing company. Uh, the other would go on to become really an international uh, best-selling author and, uh, in a lot of ways, a household name. Uh, the wager was for $50. Uh, one of the men was named Bennett Cerf, uh, the other Theodore Geisel. Bennett Cerf uh, was the co-founder of a publishing company that some of us may be familiar with uh, called Random House. Uh, the other gentleman was at the time a fairly unknown uh, author uh, by the name Theodore Geisel. The wager, the bet, was quite simple. Uh, Geisel was challenged to go and write a children's book using only 50 vocabulary words. And if he used the words a or the, those were included uh, in the 50. Uh, quite a challenge. The average children's book contained about 1,000 words, so 50 words. If he was successful, Bennett Cerf would pay him a dollar per word. And so the bet was for $50. Well, Theodore Geisel took up the challenge. He went to work. Uh, he came back uh, sometime later after writing and rewriting and rewriting, and he came back with a children's book that contained exactly 50 words. It's a pretty amazing story because this book actually went on um, to uh, become an international bestseller. It really put, uh, put him, his name on the map, and it really thrust a random house uh, into stardom, great success. This book actually went on to uh, sell 8, 9, 10 million copies, maybe more, uh, and it's a book that most of us have uh, probably read or we've had read to us, in a way we all have kind of a relationship uh, with this book, and it's the beloved book called Green Eggs and Ham, uh, by the author who went by the name Dr. Seuss, Theodore Seuss Geisel. Really amazing, just 50 words, and it dramatically changed the trajectory of these men's lives. Yet this is just a children's book. We know, those of us who are in Christ, who walk with the Lord, how much more powerful uh, his word is, how his word shapes his people. Uh, this is the word that uh, shapes every Christian. It's the word of the gospel that has taken hold of the life of this church and these believers in Thessalonica. Uh, as we remember in 1 Thessalonians 2, these are people who received the preached word not as words from men, but as uh, what it really is, the word of God. And uh, remarkably, the, the verses we're going to look at, just five verses in the original, are actually less than 50 words. They're 47 words. And when we allow these words and the Word of God at any time to uh, shape the story that God is writing in our lives, it has a far greater impact than any other word possibly could have. And so we turn our attention to these five verses, 2 Thessalonians chapter 3. Paul writes this, Finally, uh, brothers, pray for us that the word of the Lord may speed ahead and be honored, as happened among you, 
and that we may be delivered from wicked and evil men. For not all have faith, but the Lord is faithful. He will establish you and guard you against the evil one. And we have confidence in the Lord about you, that you are doing and will do the things that we command. May the Lord direct your hearts to the love of God and to the steadfastness of Christ. Uh, This short paragraph of of 47 words is a wonderful summary of so much that Paul has already written about and addressed in these two letters to these believers because he weaves together two themes that really have run through these epistles. One of them is the providential hand of God over their lives, over their faith, over their church. And the other is their calling to participate in the hand of God, in the providence of God. Now, the the providence of God is one of those mega themes that runs through all of Scripture. And our Westminster Shorter Catechism defines providence, God's work of providence, as this, that it is God's most holy, wise, and powerful, preserving and governing all his creatures and all their actions. There's a preserving aspect, a sustaining aspect, and then there's a governing or ordaining aspect. So his providence is pointing to his supreme authority, his supreme power to really bring about whatsoever he desires. Now, we see this in many passages throughout the Bible, very pointedly in passages such as Ephesians 1 verse 11 where Paul is speaking to the church about God's work of redemption and salvation. And he says in Ephesians 1.11 that God has predestined, you have been predestined according to the purpose of him who works out all things in conformity or according to the counsel of his will. All things is what Paul mentions. So it's comprehensive, that which God works out. We also think of Jesus' words in Matthew chapter 10. We heard them read earlier. Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? Yet not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father or from the will of your father. Jesus is making there the point that that which seems small or insignificant in some ways appears of little value, a single bird, a single sparrow, doesn't fall to the ground apart from the will of God. So when you and I step back and we consider our own lives, from life's more weighty decisions or consequential events or circumstances, uh, who you marry in life, whether you get married at all, what calling or vocation you might pursue, whether you uh, incur a serious illness or go through a pandemic or who may... Uh, be the leader of a country, all the way on the other side to the seemingly mundane things, the things that seem insignificant or even meaningless in a way, getting stuck in traffic, how many hairs are on your head, what you're going to eat this afternoon. All these things occur not by chance, but by the the will of God, the hand of God. In Matthew 10, Jesus' point is not only that it is God who feeds the birds and clothes the lilies of the field and determines when every creature, every bird, countless millions a year, die and fall to the ground. 
His point that is that this God is your personal father. And that if his hand, if his care extends to a single sparrow, how much more will his fatherly hand extend to you? And so Jesus says, therefore, fear not, for you are of more value than many sparrows. And this, this is the angle on God's providence, it seems to me, that Paul is coming at with the Thessalonians. That the hand of God is personal, it's present, it's purposeful in your life. And I take this from verse 3 of our text. But the Lord is faithful. He just said, not all are of faith. That is an extreme understatement from Paul. As these believers have been persecuted, they've ex experienced suffering, internal pressure from false teachers, external pressure from Jews and civil authorities. Yes, of course, not all are of faith. But, he says, the Lord is faithful. He will establish you and he will guard you against the evil one. Or you could interpret that against evil. So Paul is directing their attention to something that is certain. God's going to provide. He's going to establish, which is a word meaning strengthen there, and he's going to guard you against evil. Now, we may, know, may not know a lot about the Thessalonians, but one, one of the things we've learned throughout these letters that we are very certain of is that these believers had experienced tremendous suffering and affliction. They had experienced persecution. And so it's important that we keep that in mind as we're uh, wrestling through uh, these words. Back in chapter 1 of this letter, Paul said, that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom for which you are also suffering, and that the Lord would grant you relief amidst affliction. Now, if you're around the, the scriptures or familiar with them very much at all, to read about the faithfulness of God or that God will, God will guard you and God will uh, establish and strengthen you, that may not be surprising language to us. But I think what Paul is saying and what Paul is doing is actually quite radical, in, especially in the face of our contemporary cultural thinking. Because for Paul, the Lord's hand is not only present to comfort, it's not only present to help, it's not only present when things seem to be good, when things seem to be godly. This is a hand that guides and governs and ordains all things. That God will strengthen, that God will guard you, these are not wishes. Paul is saying this with a, a level of confidence and certainty about it. There, there's nothing outside of God or the will of God that's going to get hold of you. He, he has, his hand is firm. You can count on these things. These are the same letters uh, where Paul has said you were destined for these afflictions in 1 Thessalonians 3.3. That is, in God's predetermined plan, believers would experience trial. It's certain. Or regarding their sanctification in 1 Thessalonians 5, that the God of peace would sanctify you completely, keeping you blameless at the coming of Christ. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. 
So Paul speaks with assurance that the hand of God is present and is going to bring about what he so desires. So luck and chance, happenstance, doesn't fit into Paul's thinking. Consider these two passages. Isaiah 45, verse 7. I form light and create darkness. I make well-being and create calamity. I am the Lord who does all these things. And on a much more even personal level, Psalm 139, verse 16. In your book were written, every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them. That's the providence of God. And among other things, God's providence is to comfort his people. That things don't come into our lives or happen to us by chance. That's part of what Paul is after, I think, in writing this portion of his letter. God's faithful. He will strengthen you. He will guard you. Have you ever heard people say, let me, let me tell you what happened. It was a God thing. Now, I've, I've never said that, but I understand where people are coming from. I think it's fine, by the way, uh, that that was a God thing. Because sometimes God works in very profound ways, in extraordinary kinds of ways. Uh, every time a person is converted and comes to faith in Christ, that, that is a, an extraordinary manifestation of God's power to break through spiritual darkness, to bring life where, where there was spiritual death. So I understand when people say it was a God thing. And yet I also want to say everything is a God thing. Right? Everything is a God thing. Uh, this is my Father's world. Though the wrong seems off so strong, God is the ruler yet. God's hand in our lives and in this world is not only present and guiding that which seems good, that which seems godly. His hand rules over all things. Uh, in R.C. Sproul's book, The Invisible Hand, which I would commend to you, uh, addressing the doctrine of God's providence, he says that the word providence has all but disappeared from the vocabulary of the contemporary Christian. It's becoming obsolete and archaic. And he mentions that in the early 90s, there was a documentary series that came out on the Civil War, and it really gripped, as quite popular among uh, many Americans. And in the series, there were many excerpts from letters uh, written home by soldiers from both the North and the South, with numerous references to the word providence in these letters. And so on the eve of battle, soldiers would write to their wives or their parents about their fears about their uncertainties in certain occasions. And yet in the midst of that, they mentioned their lives being in the hands of providence. And they would capitalize, oftentimes, the P in providence. Because for them, providence was not only referring to God's purpose over their lives, it was referring to God himself. Providence kind of personified. And so... Sproul says this, there was a constant sense that all of life was lived corum Deo, before the face of God. And if you've read some of R.C. Sproul's devotionals, 
Some of them were mentioned last week, I think, in the evening service out in the back. In the margin, oftentimes he has that Latin phrase, Coram Deo, living before uh, the face of God. I think that's, that's much of what Paul is after with these believers. He's calling the believers to open their eyes to who God is, the hand of God and the presence of God active in their lives. And this is one of the great joys and privileges and blessings of the Christian life, to know and to experience the present hand of God in your life by his Holy Spirit working. Uh, Just this past week, um, in a conversation with my mother, she asked, how did your Thanksgiving service go uh, last Sunday evening? And I said, it went went very well, uh, but there were some things I wish I had expressed public thanks for, and I thought, since I got the pulpit, I can, I can do this. Uh, but I told her, uh, one of the things I wanted to express thanks to God uh, for was for you, Mom, and, and for my dad, uh, for the, the way that they raised us, for the seeds of the gospel that they planted in us, uh, children at an early age, our participation in the life of the body of Christ. Because as I continue to live, I know in my own life at age 43, and I realize that some of you uh, who may be 65 or 70 or older would see 43 as young, but there's some of you who may be 20 who view 43 as older. But I think it's true, the longer you walk the journey of faith, the more that you see the providential hand of God in your life. And I'm sure uh, some of you who have been walking with the Lord for 40, 50, or more years can testify to that truth. Uh, that's an encouragement uh, for all of us to continue uh, pressing forward uh, in our Christian journey, to see the hand of God at work uh, in our lives. Now, here's what I want us to see next in this text. Because if we desire to see and experience more of the providential hand of God in our lives, Paul gives us a clue to that end. If we want to acknowledge and be aware and uh, experience his providential hand, Paul tells us one of the avenues for that. Paul, at the same time that he can say with certainty, God will guard you against evil. God will establish you. He asks for prayer from these believers to that same end. He says, pray for us, in the opening verses of this chapter, pray for us that the word of the Lord would speed ahead and be honored and that we may be delivered from wicked and evil men. Why does Paul ask for prayer to be protected from evil men when he can count on the providence of God for protection? It's kind of striking in the same a short number of verses here. He can speak with confidence. God will do this. God's going to protect, protect you. But pr- pray for us that we will be delivered from evil and wicked men. Why does he ask for prayer? That the word of God would speed ahead and have success when he knows the truth of Isaiah 55. That the word of God which goes forth from the mouth of God will not return empty. It will accomplish that for which God uh, purposes it. 
Well, because Paul knew, and I'm sure many of us know, that God not only ordains the end of things, he also ordains the means to those ends. He not only makes certain what the end will be, but he has determined the means to bring about those ends oftentimes. If you were in Sunday school, you heard this emphasized from Romans, I think, chapter 10, where Paul, quoting the Old Testament, says, For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. That, that end is determined. Those who call in the name of the Lord will be saved. But then Paul goes on, how then will they call on him if they've not believed? How are they to believe in him if they've never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how will they preach unless they are sent? And so as it pertains to the word of God and salvation, it's just as true and biblical to say that one's salvation depends upon the proclamation of the gospel as it does to say it depends on the, uh, on the election of God. Because God has just as much determined the means as he has the end. And that should grip us. The significance of the means that he has provided. The same is true for prayer. We call prayer a means of grace. It's a means to an end. Much could be said about prayer, but I want to mention two things. First, God uses prayer to bring about certain ends. James chapter 5, James says this, Therefore confess your sins to one another and pray for one another so that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed fervently that it might not rain. And for three years and six months it did not rain on the earth. Then he prayed again, and heaven gave rain, and the earth bore its fruits. James's exhortation to pray is not that you can bring about what you will, but that you and I may participate in bringing about what God wills. Jesus gives us an entire parable, uh, the parable of the unjust judge emphasizing the importance of fighting to pray so that we would not lose heart. It's in Luke chapter 18, where Jesus speaks about this judge of a town who had no fear of God, no regard for man. And a widow of the town was pleading to this judge for justice from an adversary of hers. And we're told, though, he would not give it for a while because of her insistence her continued troubling of this judge, he eventually brings about justice. And Luke says this, Jesus said this parable so that men always ought to pray and not lose heart. You see, our prayers may not bring about what we want, but God calls us to persist, to trouble him, because in doing so, we then have the ear of God. We are aware of God's presence, that we have his ear, that he's with us, and that when we're near him, he grants to us peace. And so sometimes we may be losing heart because we are simply not praying. We're not drawing near to the Lord. It's a way 
to build up the people of God. Perhaps the most important part of prayer is that it is a primary means by which the people of God are shaped into godliness. William Carey, the father of modern missions, said, Prayer, secret, fervent, believing prayer, lies at the root of all personal godliness. And prayer is not only an evidence of faith, it is a means by which our faith is formed. Think about this. If prayer in its frequency and sincerity was a gauge measuring your heart for God, what would it read? If that was a primary gauge measuring our heart, our love, our devotion to the Lord, our response to his redeeming grace in our lives, what would it read? One author said, none of us will keep up a life of prayer unless we are prepared to change. Recently, I heard uh, John Piper responding to a question about what counsel and direction he would give, particularly to those who are in a Reformed tradition. And he said, and I'm paraphrasing, Reformed people, of which I include myself, he said, love to use their minds. They love theology. But sometimes we can love our theology more than we can love God himself. Sometimes we can love loving God more than actually loving God. We can love studying about God more than loving God. We can love preaching about God more than loving God. We can love serving God more than loving God. And I think this is one of the great blessings of prayer because prayer is an invitation to come directly into the presence of our Heavenly Father, to know His presence, to express our affection and love to Him, that we have the attention of God Himself in prayer. And so Paul here in this text, he not only begins with prayer, he ends with a prayer in verse 5. May the Lord direct your hearts to the love of God and to the steadfastness of Christ. Paul is praying that God would direct their whole heart, their whole life here, he's referring to, to receive the love of God and to have the endurance that comes from Christ. Uh, Maybe our own life story uh, does not involve becoming a part of a major publishing company or becoming an international bestseller, but God's written story for your life is of greatest value because it has his providential hand upon it. It has his hand of redemption upon your life in Jesus Christ. And Christ accomplished that glorious salvation upon the cross and offers and he applies that salvation so that we would know true fellowship and communion with God. I want us to go to to prayer as we normally do, uh, but this morning I was listening to a song, it's a song that I love, and uh, by Matt Mayer uh, called Lord, I Need You. So we're going to go to the Lord in prayer. I just want you to hear these words so you can bow your heads, and uh, may this be our heart uh, to God. Lord, I come, I confess. Bowing here, I find my rest. Without you, I fall apart. You're the one that guides my heart. 
Lord, I need you. Oh, how I need you. Every hour, I need you. My one defense, my righteousness. Oh, God, how I need you. Where sin runs deep, your grace is more. Where grace is found is where you are. And where you are, Lord, I am free. Holiness is Christ in me. So teach my song to rise to you. When temptation comes my way, and when I cannot stand, I'll fall on you. Jesus, you are my hope and stay. Our gracious God, how we give you praise for your providential hand in every one of our lives. For your providential hand, your sure and present hand in the life of us, your people, your congregation, your church, universal. Lord, we thank you that you invite us to use these beings to participate as your people in what you are doing. Even as we pray to you with these words, pray to you, Lord, with the expression of our hearts, we know that you are at work. And so we pray that you would, um, both this morning, today, this evening, in time to come, Lord, uh, draw us to yourself, uh, that we would desire more and more, that we would value more and more uh, communion with you, that we might know your peace, and that we might uh, rejoice that you use us, though broken vessels, uh, even to bring about your glorious ends. And Lord, we thank you that you rule supreme, uh, sovereign over all of creation, uh, that your hand is at work and present in us. We thank you for our great redemption that is ours uh, through the work of Jesus Christ. Uh, We pray that you would engraft people, Lord, into your redemptive story, uh, that they may know your your grace and your mercy and life everlasting. For this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.